and welcome to the Factale Investment Podcast. I'm Callum Newman, and this week we are talking crypto with Factale Editor's uh, crypto guru called Ryan Dintz, who's been investing and uh, trading around that market since 2013. And he's going to tell us all about Bitcoin and the altcoins and what's happening in that market a little later. But before we get there, I just wanted to tell you a little bit of a follow-up to the to the podcast that we did with Cameron Murray last week. Um, and if you listen to that, you know, he's a housing economist who talked about uh, why housing is more affordable than most people perceive it to be, how in cities like Brisbane you can actually borrow money at 2% and get uh, rental yields at 4%. So it's still the economics still stack up uh, big time. Anyway, I happened to have a young uh, younger couple come around uh, on the weekend and the young guy there is he did a, a redevelopment of a property on the Mornington Peninsula with his dad and I think his brothers and sisters chipped in some money. So they kind of did it as a family project of redeveloping this old house down on the Mornington Peninsula and they built a beautiful house. He, he took me down to it one day and they they spared no expense on the materials. They, they put a, a luxury kind of house together. Um, anyway, if you're not familiar with Victoria, Mornington Peninsula's about an hour and a bit south of Melbourne. It's absolutely beautiful. I grew up down there. Um, but because of the, the COVID situation and the ability for people to work from home, it's just exploded in price uh, lately uh, because a lot of people uh, from Melbourne are like, well, I can have a Mornington Peninsula lifestyle but get a, a, a wage from the, the city as if I was going into the city. So anyway, they made a, a great deal of money on this property, this couple uh, that they were involved in. And he was bringing up, well, you know, some ideas that <clears throat> of what to do next. Should they buy a house and land package as an investment in the outer Melbourne suburbs? Should they buy an apartment in the CBD? Anyway, I, I slapped him across the cheeks multiple times and said, don't be a fool, man. No, I didn't really do that. But uh, both as money-making ideas uh, are terrible. Uh, so I went and printed him off some of the reports that I've done with Catherine Cashmore here uh, at Fat Tail where we talk about where to make uh, property gains um, and the best way to go about it. And uh, apartments in Melbourne uh, are not a good idea. There's too many of them. Uh, and the rental growth is poor. And over time, uh, you're, you're not going to get the equivalent capital growth that you can doing other things. Uh, and a house and land package uh, in the outer suburbs of Melbourne is, is probably true. Uh, the same is true of that as well. So. I learned this off Catherine many years ago. What you want to get is, uh, and she, of course, we did the podcast with her a few weeks ago, is big blocks of land that can be developed into, you know, multiple units or townhouses uh, or rezoned or, or, or developed in some way that uh, enhances their land value. And I remember years ago in 2014, Catherine telling me the, the one thing that the biggest buying demographic wants is a big back garden or big block big block of land and the sort of you know, naughty estates out in the outer suburbs don't bring that. Uh, the houses are built on such small blocks now that you don't get that. And of course, an apartment, you don't have any land value. Uh, so I just thought I'd mention that in the spirit of what we've done with Catherine previously and, and Cameron Murray. Um, if you are looking for investment ideas around property, make sure you check out what uh, Catherine and I do at Cycles Trends and Forecasts. And the other thing I've got to say is Belvedere, my manservant, keeps reminding me 
if you really, if you like the podcast and you want us to keep doing it, don't forget to give us a thumbs up and five stars on however you're listening to it. Uh, by all means, send in comments, people you want to hear from, what you want to hear more about. Um, maybe you want a new host. <laughs> but give us some feedback and we'd love to hear from you. So that said, uh, we're going to switch over to Ryan. Again, he runs the uh, crypto trading service with us here at Fatal uh, Media and he personally invests in Bitcoin and, and has for a long time. Uh, he also trades on the ASX as well. So he's a multi-talented man and he's going to tell us about Bitcoin, crypto, and why you should be invested in it, even if you don't like the idea of it. So here is Ryan Dentz, crypto guru extraordinaire. Beauty, earlier in the uh, introduction, I mentioned we'd have on our uh, crypto guru here at Patel Media. His name's Ryan Dintz, and I've worked with him for quite a few years now. Um, and it's so interesting to talk about crypto because it, it's a market that splits people uh, down the middle. Those that are in it and love it can't get enough of it. Then there are those like our other colleague, Vern Gowdy, uh, who <laughs> won't touch it with a 10-foot barge pole. So we'll talk a little bit about how Ryan sees that market evolving, the opportunities that are there now. And just recently, as we record this, it's come under pressure a little bit, but that's sort of standard fare for crypto. But we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that too. So Ryan, thank you for coming on the podcast. And just to begin, do you want to just tell us your background in crypto to begin? Yeah, uh, no problems. Yeah, so uh, good to be here, Callum, and with all your uh, listeners and viewers. Um, so yeah, I got in. Um, I've been in finance since I finished uni in two thousand and one, and I've I've pretty much worked in every single area of finance. You know, from lending and financial planning through to investing and and trading and a bunch of other stuff. And um, that mainstream uh, sort of uh, viewpoint of financial markets left a lot to be desired in many ways. Like I, I could say that people thought these were the experts in their fields, but when I worked in those roles, I could see that there wasn't a lot of, you know, forward thinking or, or, or um, um, looking ahead at the technology that, that was evolving in finance. So I quit, um, I basically quit, you know, mainstream financial life in, in 2013 and it was, uh, was trading my own money for, for a while and that was during that time I had, you know, more time on my hands um, to research stuff. And uh, a, a friend of mine who I played soccer with, I used to pick him up, this Irish guy, pick him up for soccer training. And he was a math student and he we had to sit in the car and talk about stuff. And he started telling me all about Bitcoin. So this was 2013. And coming from my background of economics investing, I, I thought this is like really interesting, you know, money that wasn't part of central banking. It wasn't part of the existing financial system. Um and so I started looking into it back in 2013, 2014. I bought my first Bitcoin, about $600, um, and then lived through basically two years where there was a huge bear market in crypto. So I, I was excited about this new Bitcoin thing. I think I was telling everyone in the soccer team about it. People get bored of me talking about it. But the price of Bitcoin went down from $600 down to about $150 of Bitcoin over that time. I still kept investing, um, but you know your faith gets shaken when you, when you see something go down that much. Um, over time, despite what you think is, is groundbreaking technology. But then, um, you know, I joined Fattail in 2017, and then me and Sam Volkering launched a, a crypto service early on in 2017 and managed to catch 
the next big cycle of crypto, uh, price-wise anyway, the 2000. Yeah, I remember that one. Boom. I saw that one. Yeah. Yeah, and we we had heaps of subscribers came on at that time, and they, they didn't just come on at the end, although a bunch came, you know, at the tail end as well. But people were coming on in June. We had like twenty thousand subscribers and stuff, and it was crazy. I just joined the company, and I was like, "Wow, there's all these people interested in crypto. This is great." I mean, me and Sam were talking about it every week. Um. And then, and obviously, in 2017, 18, you had like you know a bear market hit in 2018, 19, and then since 2020, price wise has been coming, coming back up. But um, so I've been in this industry for like eight years in one form or the other. A lot of that time has just been researching, and uh, you know the, the thing about crypto that people maybe struggle to understand is it just touches so many different areas. It's not just cryptocurrency; it's uh, you know economics. It, it sort of broadens your scope for a bunch of different areas. It's economics, it's psychology, it's trading. It's money, it's cryptography, it's technology, it's all these things at once. And so even though I've been in this this for like eight years, I still learn like new things every week, basically. And that and I've basically been full time in it for almost eight years. So so I know we'll probably come to, like you said in the intro, people that aren't on side with it. My viewpoint is that no matter what your background is, you probably don't know enough about it to make a judgment either way. Uh, at the start, you really need to dive into it. And and that's what I've been trying to do for subscribers for the last uh, four years, you know, open their eyes to actually what's happening beneath the surface and beneath the headlines of, of the mainstream news. Was crypto like stocks in 2020 where, I mean, you follow the ASX here, like we had the big crash and then, you know, the, the surge that came out of it, you know, there was heaps of opportunity. Did crypto dip in the same way in 2020? Yeah, it was exactly the same. So when COVID hit, um, Bitcoin had... Uh, so Bit, it, you talk about crypto, Bitcoin leads the crypto market. So you can talk about Bitcoin price and that will be pretty much what happens with the rest of the crypto market. So in March um, 2020, when COVID hit, Bitcoin dipped really hard, just like the stock markets did and everything. So there was no diversification at that stage. It was all just everything dived, which is, tends to be what happens when there's financial pa- uh, panic. You know, gold, it's just a flight to cash. Then I remember vividly uh, Neil Cash Neil Kashkari, I think one of the Fed uh, Reserve people was on um, Bloomberg or one of these mainstream news channels at the time and said, we have unlimited money we can print to, to get us through this crisis. And as soon as he said those comments, literally to the day, you can look at a, a chart, Bitcoin started moving up, as did the NASDAQ and as did the stock market. And that uh, idea of um, you know central bank have unlimited money and we're going to do that to, to support the system was what propelled Bitcoin up from, you know, a low of, you know, 3,500 all the way up to 69,000 it touched in, in that run. Um, and it, it's followed the trajectory in a way as the NASDAQ. You can definitely see there's correlation there because the way the market views Bitcoin and crypto is primarily as a speculative technology play. That's how the market views it. I'm not saying that's what Bitcoin and crypto is necessarily, but there are aspects of it which are that, like that. That's interesting because there was a... A view, I'm not sure how valid it is now, that, that, that Bitcoin was uncorrelated to other assets. And uh, do you think that's lost a little bit then? I mean, it was for a while. I think people try to pigeonhole it into an area. And right, sometimes it's correlated to something and sometimes it's not. Uh, in the short term, it can be correlated, but over the long time, it's not correlated. So I've, I've seen these comparisons being made from time to time where, you know, Bitcoin and gold followed the same trajectory for a while, and then they didn't. And sometimes it follows the NASDAQ, and then it doesn't. So you've sort of got um, you know, differentiate between the short-term correlations and the long-term correlations. Over the long-term, um, you know, talking years, 
Bitcoin has has been the best performing asset class, risk adjusted than gold, stocks, anything. So if you you'd been a fund manager, you know, back when I first got into Bitcoin in 2013, and you'd allocated one percent of your portfolio to Bitcoin, you would have one of the best performing portfolios in the world, bar none, just from a small allocation, and that would be in a risk adjusted terms as well, because over the long term that non-correlation is there but over mm. the short term it does get caught up in all the the manias and panics and speculation so you know i, I sort of laugh at tweets if i say from the skeptics who see like you know bitcoin crashes because because um there's a financial panic and they say oh it's not a store of value or it's not a you know it's not it's not a store of value like gold or whatever you can't judge these things on one day you've got to judge it over time and bitcoin <laughs> and crypto is still very much in that price discovery phase you know so you can't pigeonhole it into being one thing. It has the potential to be digital gold and also has the potential to be um, a technology play. It has both. And it depends what is in the ascendancy at the time, I suppose. Well, I have a friend who's very deep into it and put a lot of money into it and made, you know, huge amounts of money. Um, and he, I remember back in 2017, we used to talk about the, the idea of the stack where the internet was like Facebook was built on top of the internet, right? And they captured yeah. the value. And sort of crypto, the idea at the time was that crypto inverted this and the coin, the network captured the value that was created around it. Do you yes. still think that's true? Or was okay. it ever true? Uh, it is true. So so the protocols that are used for the internet, like they call it TCP, IP, and, and even the, the email protocols, they've not changed since the 90s or even before that in some, some cases. And the idea with Bitcoin was you're going to create a protocol that could be tapped into by anyone. Now, with Bitcoin specifically, that's taken a little while to take off because technology-wise, it's deliberately slow and clunky. You know, they don't change the what Bitcoin can do, which isn't a lot, really. The, the, the developers that are involved in that don't change that because they want it to be decentralized, first and foremost, and secure. And if it's, it has to be those two things first. So the development of Bitcoin has been a little bit slow to take off, but in the last year, we've seen huge strides in that. So research into ideas like the Lightning Network, which you might have heard of. Yes. That's like what El Salvador have, have been tapping into to allow basically cheap remittances to come from the US to, to El Salvador. So this is like a, what they call a layer two technology. So it's exactly as you said, you've got this Bitcoin protocol at the bottom, which is uh, censorship resistant, secure, decentralized, and no one can change any of that. And then you've got a layer two technologies building on top of that to allow uh, more capabilities. And that's starting to happen in a, in a big way. So that thesis still plays out and it plays out with other cryptocurrencies in different ways. Um, it just takes time for that to evolve. And, and with technology, it's a lot of you know experimentation as well. So some things you don't know if it will work until it gets tried. You, you see that on the Ethereum network more um, where there's a lot more innovation but a lot of the time that comes at the cost of things getting hacked or people losing money or or um or even just things not being decentralized you know you think they're decentralized and then suddenly uh, you find out that one person holds the key and <laughs> has stopped trading so so yeah well, let's talk about the the altcoins a little bit because there's yep. i mean the gains i mean you've seen them uh, yep. they can be <laughs> ridiculous yeah. um but i remember you know so many of them were sketchy a little bit in you know what's the practical application of this thing um but they they still there they've been there for years now they're building up longevity i guess you could say um how do you go about 
viewing those? Do you look at them as like use cases or do you just follow the trend and rip alpha out of it while it's running hot or how do you go about it? So like I've always played in like small cap space when, but stocks, I always looked at small caps and you look at small caps too. And when you do, you're always dealing with uncertainty. You know, small caps can be scammy. Gold miners can be scammy. So you've always got to have in mind with altcoins that, you know, 90, 95% of them will probably go nowhere. Just like what happened in the dot-com boom. Some will go nowhere because of honest intentions, but it just didn't work. And some are just people trying to cash in on, on a boom. But that's natural. That's what happens. You know, that's why they call gold rushes gold rushes from the past. You know, people came in and tried to make money any way they could. So with altcoins, you do have to go in with a suspicious mind and you do have to go in knowing that there's a lot of hype and a lot of marketing pizzazz around it. So critics of crypto point to that and say the whole industry is a scam, but that's like, that that's just looking at the worst part of it. You've also got to look at the good side of it as well. And the way I try and do that is, one, I've got a bank of technology in my head, which has come from eight years of studying these things. So you can try and genuinely separate what looks like a technical innovation and which is just, you know, lipstick on a pig sort of stuff. Then you look at the people behind it. Um, and then you look at the markets that are trying to infiltrate. So I, I like a lot of things in the idea of, you know, gaming and music. You know, you, you've got this whole NFT culture springing up, which, you know, some of that is just a money grab as well, obviously. But behind it, the idea of decentralizing gaming, where you can actually own your in-game assets and potentially use them across games, that is actually a really interesting economic innovation on, on the gaming industry which is something to look at. Or even in the music industry, um, there's a platform called Audius, which allows uh, musicians to basically connect directly with their fans and create stuff that their fans might like, like NFTs or exclusive passes and stuff like that. And it's all built on blockchain technology. So the difference than, than not doing it with blockchain is, is you're, you're giving something which is potentially tradable or transferable or usable in the entire uh, ecosystem of, of, of crypto. The big one, probably from a disruption point of view, though, is, is decentralized finance or, or DeFi. And there's big, huge innovation happening on there, which basically, it gets a lot of pushback because it's basically going to make a lot of the functions of banking redundant. You know, And this is when some people that look at this don't really understand the, the, the system they operate in. Us in Australia or people in from a Western perspective, you know, we've got pretty good access to banking, but that's not a common experience around the world. There's, there's 2.5 billion unbanked people around the world who have just been ignored by the, the banking system. And for them to be able to send money to a relative in America or you know, from Nigeria, or even just to just to store their money in, in, in their phone and something they control, that is like unbelievably valuable to them. And the existing financial system wasn't creating those tools. Bitcoin and the DeFi ecosystem are. So there's a heaps of innovation there. The key is to separate what is genuinely innovative and what is just a cash grab. And look, it, it does go through these hype cycles. So like you said, you know, I know some people who, who are into crypto purely for making money from trading. They don't give a stuff about any of the, stu the stuff I care about, which is decentralized and that. They just like to trade it and they like to trade hype and that. So that's, that, is, that is the way a free market functions though. A free market uses all those people, all with their own motivations and interests. And the price reflects what that is at the time. And sometimes that's good on the way up and sometimes it crashes on the way down. But imagine that compared to the existing financial system full of middlemen and regulators and government interventions. That's not a free market solution. You know, this is the free markets in action, good and bad, warts and all. And that's why I like that's why I prefer to play in that space, because that is that's something to me which seems fair. One thing like with crypto that you know, a skeptic might say, uh, would go, well, the, you know, the innovation's great, but there's there's no profits there. There's no real companies, there's no 
I mean, not there is real companies, but you know what I mean. There's no earnings. Um, is are those days coming? Are they getting closer to producing like revenues and accounts? No, like no, there, are, there are uh, there are earnings and there are profits, but instead of it being done through a company structure, it, it's basically distributed uh, through the protocol. So, give an example of Ethereum, which is probably the most well known for that. You can stake your Ethereum, which basically means locking it into a smart contract for a certain amount of time. And in return, you will get newly generated Ethereum paid to you. So almost like a term deposit in crypto. So staking it isn't just locking it in a term deposit for nothing. It's actually helping the security of the network. So by staking, you essentially make the network more secure. And in return for that, you generate newly generated Ethereum. Um, Miners of Ethereum also generate the fees paid. So every time you do a transaction on Ethereum, you've got to pay a fee to the protocol, and that goes to Ethereum miners. So there are economics behind this as well, what we call token economics. But again, that's innovative. People are experimenting with different things. But the prime motivation is not to reward um, you know, Silicon Valley sophisticated investors who get first dabs at everything. It's to reward first users and early adopters which is actually a lot fairer. So it's almost like a, a Kickstarter ethos where if you want to take a risk on a protocol, then you will get rewarded for it. In the past, the finance industry locked out. You know, when did me or you get a chance to invest in Facebook in 2004? We didn't, you know, or Google. That's all reserved for sophisticated investors, which is a bullshit concept in itself. You're allowed to gamble on horses, but you're not allowed to invest in early stage uh, companies. It's, it's a stupid concept. And crypto does away with that. Can you lose your money? Of course you can. But that's the, can you lose your money going to the casino? Yes, you can. That's you know that's the whole point of it. So, to your point, there are earnings and incomes, but the models are different than a company because it's not a company. It's a it's a decentralized organization of people. It's a community, uh, and that doesn't always work well either. That there, there are still experiments in what is the best governance structures for doing doing this, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But that is part of the fun and, and the innovation as well. And I think what we'll see emerging from that is different types of organizational structure with different economics, which will reward people in different ways. Uh, just like, you know, a company structure didn't exist until, um, you know, the 1600s with the Dutch East India Company. That, that, that was the first company structure, which we all think is as the normal way of doing business today with, you know, shareholders and a board and directors. That only came about in the 1600s. Before that, people were sole traders and you know partnerships and other stuff. So, the idea of evolving organizational structures is an up, another part of the crypto industry. Not many people um, actually understand either. I have a theory. I don't know if it's based in reality no. or not, but that <laughs> the stock markets <laughs> and the crypto market will will somehow come together. That they won't be separate, and eventually we will have companies issuing coins and yep. and uh, because when I look at the stock market, sometimes it does seem. It is an old concept. As you said, it comes from Amsterdam or whatever. It's a couple of hundred yeah. years old. And like you see the directors, you know, put up their facts. <laughs> they've said in that they've changed something. And you're like, I think this is, you know, kind of prime for <laughs> disruption. Exactly. Um, do, do, you, do you see that potential there? That is not even a theory. That is, that is going to happen. Even the ASX, the, the main stock market in Australia, they are moving to a blockchain-based system. And the only reason that it's taken them so long to do is because they're going to have to cut the lunches of a lot of, of their partners, you know, custodians, administrators, accountants, um, everyone else who's involved. I mean, have you ever like bought a stock and then a few weeks later, out of nowhere, you get a letter in the post which has like uh, your yeah. holdings in that. Yeah, <laughs> and then, yeah. and you know, what do I do with this? Do I keep it in the bin? Do I chuck it in the bin? Do I keep it? I'm not so sure. <laughs> do I give it to my tax man? 
that is like archaic. And you even like things like when a director sells, you know, sometimes if you're in a small cap and you would like to know if a director's selling and you find out like two months after they've done it. With a with blockchain technology, all this could be done in real time, verified that who's doing what is is doing it. So cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology are going to radically change the infrastructure of the financial industry. But like you said, let's think about companies issuing tokens. Well, they already do that in a way with reward schemes. If you think about the airlines, for example, sometimes their their point schemes were actually more valuable than their airline business. Now, the problem with those point schemes is sometimes the airlines went bust and they sold the point schemes onto another business and maybe you lost your rewards and things like that. With a blockchain-based system where you owned your points, potentially those reward points could be used across different companies even or across different industries. You could find different economics of, 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 of how these things work. And, and companies, for example, Adidas are, are looking to introduce, um, I think they've done a partnership with Coinbase. And what you'll find them doing is they'll do NFTs where, you know, you can own your like exclusive pairs of shoes verified on the blockchain, which brings that collectible aspect into it as well. So you're going to see all this experimentation done and, and you're 100% right. The theory of, of companies doing this is not, I think even 2022, you'll see a lot more of that happening. And again, it will be experimentation to start off with, but when something works, you can guarantee other companies will start copying it. I guess the other big whales in the market are the central banks. And I know you and Greg have talked about this in the past with the idea of the central bank digital currencies. Uh, I mean, I presume you see that as inevitable. Yeah, it's coming. And China is going to be the first cab off the rank with that. So but, what, what happens to the, the old style currency in that scenario? Or? Well, I think, though, I think, look, I see central bank digital currencies as a very dangerous thing. So I see it as two possible futures we've got. One is a world of cryptocurrencies, which rely on free markets, and that comes with pros and cons, um, but at least it is um, ownership and sovereignty to the individual. If we move to a world where it's just central bank digital currencies, you're, act you're actually giving central bankers even more power over money than they do today. Because with central bank digital currencies, they're taking some aspects of the blockchain technology and ignoring the good aspects. They're taking the idea of surveillance. <laughs> They're taking the idea of pro pro programmable money, which means, you know, when they do things like in times of crisis, like they put money into the system, maybe they'll give you money directly, but only allow you to spend it within a certain time frame or on certain industries. And this is a level of micro control, which horrifies me. So not only have they got control over the money supply, but how we spend it as well. And, and that's what I think central bank digital currencies want to do, whereas cryptocurrencies do the opposite. They take power away from central banks. They take the power of even money creation away from them. And the way I see the future evolving is we'll have both paths at once for a while, and it will be a little bit of a battle between which one wins out. At the end of the day, though, a central bank digital currency is just a currency like we've got now where money can be created at will, there's no scarcity value. If you look at inflation right now, you look at how central bankers are stuffing up uh, the economics of the situation now. It's just that, but with more control to them. So to me, it's not a good thing. It, I think it's probably the last ditch attempt of central banks who have probably realized too late what, what the actual threat is of Bitcoin to their sovereignty, their control over money. And I think they're a little bit scared now. And I think that's why we'll see a lot of these CBDC things being rushed out with a lot of, you know, propaganda spin around them. But just with Bitcoin, I mean, I've done the journey 
along the way. There's been <laughs> a gazillion fears. You know, China was going to ban it. It's bad for the environment. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, you can be hacked by quantum computing. Da da da. It's had to sort of yeah. climb the mountain of all these worries. Is yeah. there one that you still worry about? I mean, my friend who who's put millions into it, he um, he sort of said every time it it defeats one of those worries, it gets stronger. The, the, the trust in it gets bigger and stronger. And uh, uh, do you sort of see it in the same way or is there yeah. something that you worry about? Look, so like I said, since I've been in around eight years, I used to get a lot more wired in the past. Like when I was in that early bear market from 2014 to 2016, I saw all those problems and I could not see how they were surmountable. I was like, well, the government will just ban it, you know? And I was, even though I was still investing, part of me was like, well, I can't see a way past this. Like you said, over time, you've watched all those, 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 um, adversities be beaten you know the big one this year was china's got well there was two narratives one is china's going to ban it which they did and that had zero effect <laughs> and then but, but that was on the back of china controls it so there was two fear candidates <laughs> and, and it was like both narratives got destroyed at once because no they no longer controlled it because they just banned it and now they've banned it and it's still going up but that obviously has no effect so you're right there's a lot of um fear and the mainstream's terrible. There's like, you know, one thing when you look at the world through the, the lens of actually a topic you know about, which in my case is cryptocurrencies, you see how bad the reporting is from the mainstream journalists. All they want is a hook, you know, you know, a scare campaign or, you know, some silly story about someone that made money doing something ridiculous. There's Hacks. no um, there's no research into it. And, and that makes me worry about, well, if they don't know about something I know about, what about other things they report on, like climate change or like the economy, if they can be so rubbish at this reporting? So that's one of the consequences of my journey through crypto is I don't really trust as much of what the mainstream press puts out as I maybe used to at the start of that journey. But the question you asked me was, does anything worry me now? I think to a degree, the central bankers are the final boss. You know, that is, you know, when you're playing an arcade game, this is the, this is the big boss at the end of it. And I don't think they can win, but what they can do and what I think they'll try to do is they'll try to slow things down and they'll try and muddy the waters enough that if Bitcoin and crypto eventually wins, them and their cronies and the elite will try and make sure they own a big chunk of it. Because at the end of the day, you're starting to see you know, politicians in America starting to get onto Bitcoin and you find out that they actually own Bitcoin. And there's nothing that changes someone's mind on Bitcoin as much as actually owning it and seeing it going up in value. And, and to think the the elite, the current financial elite, won't at one stage say, all right, this this is coming. We can't do anything about it, but let's let's try and own a big chunk of it because because there's already 19 million Bitcoin out in the wild. There's only 2 million left to go. If you want in, time is running out from that perspective. So I think what we'll see probably over the next year is like huge amounts of fear campaigns, huge amounts of muddying the waters, and the challenge for a lot of people in Bitcoin is is basically to ignore it, to hold it, and hang on, yeah, and to hang on, and to basically make sure you you own your cryptocurrencies in wallets that only you control, which is one of the unique aspects of crypto over, say, gold. Like if I want to own gold, yeah, sure, I could own a gold bar, but once it's in my house, I can't really do much with it. But but with Bitcoin or with crypto, I can hold that on wallets that I only I control. No one can touch it. It's called self custodianship. But not just hold it, I can also spend it and do stuff with it digitally as well. So it gives me that that dual use case of you know usability but self-custodianship. And if 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 that's what I want people to take away from today, it would be, you know, buying some, you, you never want to make this, you know, the, the biggest part of your portfolio. A small percentage will do, 
but buying it and holding it in a wallet that you control is at least a hedge to the potential of economic collapse in the current monetary system, which is a you know, is a prospect. Whether what probability you put on that, mm. but it is a prospect. So, well, I was just going to say we had a guy called Cameron Murray on last week talking about housing, and he said, "Well, when you buy a house, you take on a big debt usually, because you take on a big debt." If you don't buy a house, too, you like you don't write it down, but you, you're risking that it, you know, it keeps rising and, and uh, that sort of thing. I feel like crypto is the same way. You kind of have to be in it yeah. because the the potential of it is still so big. I remember you tweeted actually a while ago. I remember when Bitcoin was around thirty US, or it got to? It, uh, yeah. You put a tweet out saying, "Oh, you know, I'm jumping in." And um, I'm just trying to think what I was going to say. It was sort of like the the idea that. You have to be in it. You have to be in it to win it, of course. But um, <laughs> I remember that. I mean. <laughs> you, the, 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 your point was that it wasn't retail driving the rally that had happened to that point, and that the, the idea that there's still a lot of people and a lot of capital that could allocate to this sector, and that's still in play. Yeah, and 100%. you know who knows where it ends up by five, in five years. Um, well, there's a few valuation models. On, I'll stick to Bitcoin for now, but that's exactly right. But Bitcoin is still look, probably about eight times less than the total value of the gold market. So even as that one aspect to it, which is a digital store of value, you're still talking eight to ten times the current value, just just to just to match gold's you know store of value argument. But like we've been talking about, crypto can do a lot more. It can it can be the new rails for a, a new financial system. It can disrupt you know, the way stock markets work and even disrupt the way companies organize. Now that's a hundred trillion dollars, you know, of, of, of value that is not in Bitcoin yet that, that could allocate some percentage. And this is sort of my big uh, thing. What I think we'll start seeing in 2022 is, you know, funds allocating certain percentages to it. Um, and it won't be a lot, but it, as part of a portfolio, a 1% allocation for a big fund it makes sense. You know, maybe that's 5%, maybe that's 10%. It will depend on the risk tolerance and the belief in the asset. But even for a naysayer, even for someone who's a critic, even for our mate Vern Gowdy, <laughs> it is not stupid to not like it and not think it's got a prospect and still have 1% of your portfolio on it. Indeed, that is- In case like, you're wrong, yeah. That is the rationale. It's It takes extreme arrogance to be against it after 12 years of being proven wrong and to say, I'm never touching that because I'm right and the market's wrong. You know, People talked in the past about tulip booms. Now, the tulip bubble lasted, what, a year? This is 12 years, and it's a, it's a technological juggernaut which has attracted billions and billions of dollars, and some of the brightest minds in computer science and technology. Jack, Jack Dorsey of, of Twitter and Squares just quit um, basically Twitter to focus full-time on Bitcoin, and that's someone with a track record of you know investing in early-stage businesses and, and scaling them up. And there's, there's, there's lots of people like that. So I think... The, the equation people have to make in the head is not, do I think it will work? Do I like it or do I not like it? Which is what you started your intro with. It's, okay, I don't like it, but if I'm wrong, what's that going to cost me? Like you were saying with, with Cameron Murray with the houses. And so how much am I willing to hedge my own mind in that sense? On the other hand, if you like it, you, you don't want to get too carried away either. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to, because it is volatile and that, even if you believe in it, the volatility can really like, cause you some emotional well, well let's just we did say we'd talk about that so it has been volatile in the last week is that fair to say i mean Bitcoin yeah, over, over the whacked. weekend yeah. yeah and the alts went down as well i take it everything went down yeah so everything's going down. basically on friday night um 
there was basically what they call a liquidity crisis. So a bunch of leveraged traders got liquidated and it caused this cascading effect of liquidation. This was on Bitcoin. And it happened at a sort of what I would probably consider a key price level. So there was a, a huge whale, like a big Bitcoin holder sold at this key price level, which caused the price to fall. And it was Friday night, so there wasn't as much liquidity in the market as there might be during the week. And once that price level fell, it caused someone else who'd you know leveraged up to sell, and that caused the price to go down further. And then it, it cascaded all the way down. So it was basically a leveraged uh, trading liquidity thing, which then had a knock-on effect to the whole market. So um, I think it fell like you know twenty percent in one day, price of Bitcoin. Which you know again that scares people. And it, but for Bitcoin, it happens. You know. You, there's a thing in, in, in finance where you want to look at the standard deviation of volatility. So you want to look at what is uh, the normal parameters of volatility. And for Bitcoin, even though this thing can happen where you get these huge down days, that fall was within the standard deviation of probability. You know, in hmm. the 2017 uh, bull, bull run, we had um, six falls, six pullbacks in that run from like, you know, a couple of thousand bucks all the way to 20,000. We had six pullbacks of more than 30%. You know, and that would you know scare people out, but it, then it, it fell. It shook out the people who didn't maybe have as much faith in it, and then it started rising again. And then that's what it tends to do. And I, I should I don't know if there's a hundred percent true, but I don't mind volatility in the stock market. And with your flip trading, that's when you get those big jarring moves. That's when you start to get maybe a glimpse into a thing that you wanted to buy, and you can jump on it, or you can short it, or you know maybe you could see that key price level, and you go, well, you know maybe we go down from here. Like there are opportunities yeah. in that if you're trying to trade it. Yeah. Um, That's like true. Uh, it, the, the hard thing with crypto trading is it's a 24-7 market. <laughs> and, and, you know, you might see a trade now and then a few hours later it's gone. And so with a lot of the crypto flip trading stuff, it tends to be a a long bull strategy. I don't really try and, you know, ever sell out. Uh, it, it's mainly trying to find the projects that will, you know, do do best over the medium term. But But what you say is true. Looking at volatility... And then looking at the reaction to that volatility can give you some interesting insights into the state of the market. So, for example, with Bitcoin, even though we've had this huge price fall in a, in a couple of days, I'm looking at the on-chain statistics because the beauty of the blockchain is you can see what people are doing on the blockchain because it's transparent. And I can see that there's very few Bitcoin holders moving their Bitcoin onto exchange addresses, which suggests that despite the falls, there's no one, there's not a lot of people panicking and moving the Bitcoin onto an exchange to sell mm. it at this point. So you can see that as a very positive sign. And, and since that happened, we've we've risen, you know, from 42 grand up back up to 50 as we're recording this. And so you can see that stress test and then you can see the reaction. If if we'd seen the opposite happen, if we'd seen it fall 20% and we saw a huge rise of Bitcoin coming onto exchange addresses, then you could you could potentially look at that and say, hey, we're probably going to be in for a dodgy month because there's people panicking. And that again it can inform your trading decisions a little bit more. But right now, at least since I checked this morning, um, there's not the the people holding it are not panicking. They're not saying, "Oh, I better get out of Bitcoin" at the moment. And we've even started to see a few of these alts shoot back up. Um, I think Matic is one that's risen. Um, another one called Fraxshare. I saw was up twenty percent this morning. So again, like you said, that volatility and the reaction to that volatility is how a lot of people in crypto, especially those traders I was telling you about before, that's how they make money. Basically, <laughs> I should say that. My mate that is, is, uh, rides the Bitcoin bull all the way, he he reckons his sleep was destroyed in 2017, never to recover. Because <laughs> he'd wake up and go, ah, 
<laughs> like to this day, the first thing I do when I wake up at six o'clock in the morning is I check my phone and look at the Bitcoin price. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I'm either I'm either jumping out of bed, uh, turning on the computer to look at the charts, or I'm like, oh, nice one. I'll go and grab a bowl of cereal. Um, <laughs> but yeah, look, because I've been in that long, I can I can I can get through these volatile times fairly easily. But that's not to say like your your men your mental brain kicks in. You know your 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 emotions kick in no matter what. So when it was falling and I was just looking at the price and it fell like fifty k, forty seven k, forty five k, forty two k in the space of like twenty minutes, even I was like, "What's going on here?" Like <laughs> for a moment, you're thinking, you know, I better not tell the wife about this. <laughs> um, but then it might take me like half an hour to get over that and just go, "Look, we've seen this before." For someone new, they need to look at the context. And and I, I tried to put out a note to subscribers yesterday just to try and, you know, make people not get nervous. If you think about it, a year ago today, Bitcoin was at 19,000 US dollars. Today, people are panicking because we're at 49,000. You know, look at that in context. And that's why you always have to zoom out. And again, if you look a year before or a couple of years before, that constant trajectory upwards is happening. The volatility is a function of that price discovery process. So it's a, it's a function of everything we've talked about today. The uncertainty around the technologies, the the uh, the existing uh, incumbents trying to stop it any way they can, the central banks' reaction. That's why that volatility is there. That's how the free markets are judging it. Um, but if you look at the trajectory over the last 12 years, it's one way. It's up, up, and up. So I think that comes back to what I've had to say a few times today is, as part of your portfolio, whether that's 1%, 5%, or 10%, as a long-term diversifier and as a long-term hedge against what you don't know could happen, it makes 100% sense. And I think that's the way the financial industry is going to start looking at that in 2022. That's the way fund managers are going to do it. Fund managers in the financial industry are never early adopters in this because if they move too early and get it wrong, they lose their job. But what happens is this like herd effect. As soon as one or two do it and it goes all right, then the rest of them can safely jump on and not lose their job if they're wrong. And that's what I think we'll see over the next year. And if that does happen, you know, the price of Bitcoin could go up a lot more than what people might think. Mm, interesting. All right, mate, it's been a pleasure. So we'll catch up with you again, I mean, three or four months after Christmas. Next, next time Bitcoin <laughs> we'll collapses. Bitcoin gives it a, a Christmas rally like uh, everybody Next wants. time, it, it get me on when it goes up. And then I <laughs> Well, it's been a pleasure, mate, and we'll talk soon. All right.